Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on today's programme by Angus Donald. Angus is a sales and marketing director at Camcol Limited, a Cambridgeshire-based company that has developed a range of high-quality medical collagen products to provide benefits across a range of different applications. Angus, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air and speak with me. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. So what I'd like to understand, Angus, first and foremost, is what that word leader actually means to you personally. I think to me, uh, leadership is, is something which uh, really embraces a whole range of personal characteristics, uh, which really, for me, it stems from uh, integrity through what you're doing. And really, uh, a good leader and the leaders that I think function best are the ones that really set the tone for the business uh, and lead by example. I know it's a cliche, but I, in my experience, I've found through all businesses um, having a, a good leader who espouses the right values and communicates those really makes a difference. Um, and by that, I mean someone who can demonstrate very strong energy and drive and a will to succeed. Because at the end of the day, we know business isn't always it isn't always easy. Uh, but also setting very clear purpose and values for the business, defining them clearly, and then communicating them through to everybody and living them and making sure that the the people involved in the business also um, are encouraged to embrace them, to buy into what the business is looking to do, and to then demonstrate those on a daily basis. I think the other aspect to leadership that's certainly very important to me is uh, openness and consistency and fairness. And that goes back as well to the initial values that, are, that I've mentioned. I think if you set values but don't then demonstrate those in the way you conduct the business and in the way that you interact with people, ultimately it undermines uh, what you're trying to do. Um, the other thing I would say that's absolutely important as a leader is the ability to really support and encourage others to succeed and I was fortunate in experiencing early in my career uh, leadership that really empowered myself and my colleagues to take ownership, uh, to welcome the challenges the business threw at us, and also embrace mistakes, mis- embrace problems, but, but really encouraged to learn from them. Uh, and then I think also very important uh, in leadership is celebrating success. We all know how hard everybody works these days and work more and more with modern technology can impinge on all aspects of life and throughout a day. So I think it's very, very important that uh, success is shared and celebrated and it's immensely motivational, I think, to do that. But that's what I would consider to be an ideal way of, of leading a business. You raise some incredibly important points there, Angus, especially when you talk about, of course, 
encouraging people to sort of take on their own forms of leadership, be independent, go beyond their comfort zones, but also encourage people to try new things and make mistakes as well and beginning to, and begin to learn from those experiences. Because I think, especially among younger generations, perhaps there may be a little bit of a hesitancy to try new things due to a fear of failure. Whereas we should be yeah. telling people to be willing to do that and to embrace it as a learning experience, as you mentioned there. Most definitely. Uh, you think even from childhood, uh, where we take risks, we learn from taking risks, we learn from the mistakes. If it hurts occasionally, um, you learn from it, you don't do it again. And I think there's probably no one in business who hasn't made errors and who hasn't regretted some of the things maybe they've done or said. Uh, however, it's really how you learn from those and, and how honest you are with yourself uh, as to what was underpinning those those situations and how you can maybe modify your behavior or how you can use the experience of others to mitigate against those sort of things happening again. And you mentioned, of course, the fact that you were quite fortunate early on in your career to experience some good and effective leadership. Um, could you give me yeah. an example then, Angus, and maybe some people that you've worked for um, that you've looked up to or maybe other people, be they in the public eye or otherwise, that maybe have had an influence on you? Well, I wouldn't want to really pick out absolute individuals uh, because mm. I think there are a whole host of uh, managers and leaders of businesses, businesses I've been in that have had an influence where I've picked mm. up elements of what they do. But, but what I would say, I'd say the, the, the key aspects of it are um, certainly early in my career, I worked for Smith & Nephew Medical. And when I talked about empowerment, it was only when working for other organizations that really I realized how at a very young age, myself and my colleagues were uh, encouraged by the the top leadership, uh, but also our own managers to take ownership of issues, to, to really embrace uh, the values of the company, to take a degree of risk, but always not going too far. And, and really uh, making us feel as though even though we were part of a very successful multinational, our section of the business was ours and, and uh, allowing us to grow and learn by exposing us to customer-related issues, letting us travel abroad, um, mixing with all sorts of different cultures and different business styles. And the learnings there that we all gathered, I believe, are things that um, you probably didn't really appreciate at the time because it was early in the career. So I think that kind of leadership was very, very positive um, early on. Likewise, various situations where um, the integrity of senior management, the drive to succeed, uh, to be able to adapt when circumstances maybe went against the organization or there were product-related or service-related issues, um, uh, but also being very positive about that um, and not looking to cast blame, but actually trying to just address the issue for the business on, on a wider basis. So I had leaders who certainly did that um, earlier and, and on an ongoing basis in, in my career. 
And I would say that you mentioned adaptability there. That's no more important than it is at the present time uh, with the difficulties um, arising as a result of COVID-19, uh, no less. And you, talk, and you talked as well about, of course, the experience of being exposed to a certain, I don't know, difficulties, um, if you will, and the learning experience you had from that. Do you think maybe for leaders and employees alike out there at the moment there are positives to take from directing businesses through this current crisis and that it will eventually in the long run help people develop in terms of resilience and uh, the experience that they have absolutely uh, i think our, our business uh, at camco uh, as well as many others we've had to pivot away from the path that we were on in order to uh, try and see how we can contribute in some way to to the wider picture and, and to resolving the issues. And I think that um, the, the COVID-19 crisis, I think, teaches a lot about preparedness, um, planning, uh, and also being uh, aware of, of, of opportunity in a positive way, in a sense that uh, many companies I'm aware of um, have been able to shift their working practices. And I think that working from home, uh, the benefits and the drawbacks of that can, that that can bring are now much more apparent. But I think it will mean changes in the, in the workplace. Uh, I think also the opportunity to, uh, as I say, adapt quickly and to find ways of um, changing your business model rapidly but also understanding the difficulties in doing that, but also the benefits in that you can you can um, change practice, you can move into different areas. So, for example, we're a medical device business, but we've moved into producing uh, hand sanitizer. Mm. And the learnings we've gained from that around supply chain uh, readiness, um, around the... Uh, the regulatory environment and the changes that have occurred to allow companies to move into that space are very good learnings to take in the sense that nothing stays still. And as a business, you do have to be adaptable um, uh, and really recognize that an opportunity such as this um, is, is something which uh, you you can really make um, the best of as opposed to just looking upon it as being an issue that will um, undermine what you're trying to do in in your existing uh, business model. And do you think that the team at CamCol as well has been able to adapt really well to this current situation, the changing working patterns and really sort of take it in their stride as well? Because you often hear it said, don't you, that times of adversity like this can really bring out the best in people in that way. I think that's absolutely the case. I think um, it, it brings together a small team um, or large teams with a very common goal, a, a common purpose. I think it brings urgency. And I think that urgency then encourages people to uh, explore uh, different options more rapidly to assess the situation, um, to to adapt their working practices. And it can often be an uncomfortable experience because you might be used to doing things at a certain pace in a certain way. Uh, but what situations such as this show is that you can achieve a great deal very quickly by being reactive and responsive to what's going on, uh, pulling together. And actually, it, it, it can energize a business. And 
um, I think taking forward that sense that uh, challenges are there to be overcome and you don't necessarily have to see them as a negative, but actually something which can actually benefit the business and benefit individuals. Um, where, for example, someone who might be in one role is having to adapt and perform multiple functions. Uh, another area is people who might be very comfortable with routine, having to uh, um, be able to respond to uh, a totally different approach. And, and you learn from that and you benefit and grow from that, I would say. So I think probably there are many companies that have, uh, have, have will have grown uh, from this experience and the skill sets of many of the individuals within them will have been forced to change and forced to evolve. Uh, and undoubtedly, I would say, thereafter, they'll be more flexible as a business, more responsive to customer need, and um, I think more able then to, to, to be successful. Mm, I can certainly see uh, that being the uh, the case, Angus. And if we do think about that future and the eventuality um, before we do wrap things up on uh, today's programme, do you give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months or so will hold for yourself and for CamCol and also what you hope to achieve as a business, not just in that time frame in getting through COVID-19, but also what your ambitions are for beyond this pandemic as well? Certainly, our, our long-term aims remain the same. Uh, we, we, we want to develop the medical collagen products as a, a British company using British materials uh, and to develop our range and expand that range much more fully. So our long-term vision hasn't changed. However, what we have done, uh, we've made a very strong commitment to continue to expand our operation and consolidate uh, the position with respect to providing sanitizers uh, because we can see that our core customer base, which is uh, essentially NHS medical care facilities, that they will continue to uh, require uh, PPE and and, uh, sanitizers. But also we can see the opportunity to broaden the scope of, of the business to move more towards public services. So we're investing heavily and expanding our capability. We've had good support from HMRC in terms of licensing to be able to do that. And we will be developing our distributor network, uh, expanding the range of sanitizer products. Uh, But uh, over and above that, uh, as I said, I think there's lessons also for us in terms of how we approach uh, the, the future. I think generally for everybody, um, the, there'll be a, a step change in outlook towards sanitation and um, infection prevention. And I think that really is something which which we want to support as a business on a wider basis beyond medical healthcare. Uh, but as I say, we will be... Um, consolidating that position and then expanding further with our medical collagen products and looking to having uh, completed the process of CE marketing and and brought those products to market, our aim then is to uh, move forwards in developing our international businesses um, likewise. 
certainly seems as if the business is um, certainly uh, looking to innovate um, Angus and diverge a little bit away from its um, ordinary functions while consolidating what it already had as well. So it certainly seems to be exciting times. And what I think would be fantastic to um, actually uh, do for the listeners is maybe when the next year or so, when we start to see these hopes born out, we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how those projects um, are getting on as well. Um, well, that would be great. It would be great. I agree. Um, it's unfortunate that we are just about out of time uh, today, but um, I've got to say, Angus, it's been a really insightful and also really enjoyable experience having you um, on the programme with us. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come onto the air and speak with me. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. And do take care and do continue to stay safe with everything still going on as well, for sure. Thanks very much. And you. That was Angus Donald, Sales and Marketing Director at Camcol Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. A former cricket player, Strauss is one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, and he is also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively, 
relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was to just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I Yeah, well so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um now and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change. 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.